This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined today by Jeff Scott. Jeff has had a major impact on education, particularly education at Otago Polytechnic, um, around ideas of powerful assessment, change leadership, capability, and he's got a, a wonderful website called Flip Curric. And I'm sure he's been doing lots of other stuff since then, although he claims to be retired. Welcome, Jeff. How are you? Oh, really good. Thanks, Sam. And thanks so much for having me along uh, part of this. So where are you, Jeff? I'm at the moment sitting in Piermont in Sydney, overlooking the Blackwattle Bay um, at the Anzac Bridge, right in the, the heart of a uh, very wet Sydney. So we've been asking people how their bubble life has been. And I don't know what you've been calling it in New Zealand, in Australia, but it's changed from bubbles to traffic lights to some sort of let it all rip that we've got now so how has your bubble traffic light let it all rip life been well well, it it lurches thought i mean as you said sam because i'm um sort of 76 and vaguely bewildered then you know um it's been very different for me i think than for folks who are full-time employed like my kids um and so a lot of the work that i was doing is actually a continuity of what i was doing which is basically um before before COVID, I was travelling quite a lot to meet people face-to-face. Now I'm doing it via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever particular application folks are using. Um, so I carry on very much the same uh, in, in that sense. And because the bubble's now gone, um, we are starting to get back together face-to-face, although I'm fairly dubious about the fact that I will be flying internationally soon. Still, so I'm... Uh, I'm not really that comfy with 24-hour flights. Um, and for example, tonight I've got I'm on a member of the uh, the committee that the European um, Commission for Economic Development Committee Education for Sustainable Development Committee for Europe. And before the bubble, I was to go over to Geneva, um, but now we'll just do it tonight. 6 p.m. tonight, I'm on, and we'll just do it <laughs> literally as I'm doing with you now. Um, which, of course, saves an enormous amount of jet lag and pain and time um, do you, shifts. Do you find it hard, though, to, to change gear? Because if you, normally you would have gone to Geneva, that's what you were doing for the week. Yeah. But, yeah. but now you're, you're at home and then all of a sudden your brain, brain is in Geneva. Yep. No, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that's the challenge we've all had. I think, uh, and, and tied into that actually also is the three-dimensional human relationships that you develop when you meet face-to-face. And I've been able to sustain these networks. You know, I mean, I do a lot of work still across the world, as you said, particularly I'm now looking at building um, 
the sustainable development goals into the curriculum of unis around the world. And what used to be personal relationships with people followed up by a Zoom call, where you all knew one, one another face to face, uh, I've only got now the relationships that were extant two years ago. I don't have the face to face relationships of the new folks. And so it's always a little bit more difficult, um, in my view. You know, we are basically three dimensional um, relationship creatures. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting, I think, down the track to see just how that will unfold. But at the moment, I'm just basically burbling along with the old networks and um, zooming my way through life, really, and having a break here and there, having a surf and so on. Yeah. I was going to say, for someone who's supposed to be retired, it sounds pretty busy. Are you actually getting to, to put your feet up and enjoy yourself, or are you not a putting-your-feet-up kind of chap? I'm not. I'm, I'm actually, I do like being active, and I've got this philosophy, it's better to burn out than rust out, uh, or, you know, age with enthusiasm or something, and whilst my health holds out, you know, um, I'm determined, I, I walk, uh, I either walk, walk or surf every day for about an hour and a half, um, so... I like to keep physically active, but also mentally active. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's only so many uh, days a week you can sit down and do crossword puzzles all day. Um, so I do a lot of interactivity, you know, like as I said tonight, I've got the Geneva meeting. I've, I've written, um, since lockdown, I've written five book chapters, um, you know, on, the, on that sustainability stuff and on our work around the world on engaging students in productive learning during COVID and, you know, stuff, predictable stuff like that that we're doing, that I'm I'm on a number of academic boards where I've had to come to grips with what we do with students when they can't actually be with us. Um, I'm on, for example, the Western Sydney University International College. I'm the chair of the academic board there, you know, and all of our students are now studying around the world in different time zones, you know, which is a very significant challenge for engagement. So have you found the secret to that engaging students during COVID? Well, it, personal contact's the key. Uh, and actually uh, having flexibility in your systems is key. So, you know, if you've got a student studying in Nairobi, uh, then you've got to a, have a, a way of actually developing a personal relationship when you haven't met them face-to-face. And that can only be done, you know, um, by personal phone calls or personal WhatsApp calls, not just a collective Zoom meeting. And uh, trying to, in a sense, I'm going to always say this philosophy, if you want to engage people, it's a bit like getting changed to work. You've got to listen and link and then lead, always in that order. So talking personally in terms of where they're at and not what you want to tell them to do, and then having in mind what you've got in what they might do, but trying to work out how to match that into where they're at, you know, which is the listen and the link thing, is actually a critical human characteristic. Um you know, for good, for good, good humans. You know, good people listen. Let's listen now to the first of your music choices. Let's have Wings, Mull of Kintyre. Why this one? Well, I've picked, two, I've chosen two. Both of them are actually uh, sort of reminiscent of my Scottish heritage, which um, I did a I did a keynote address by Zoom a couple of years ago with um, all of the universities and colleges in Scotland for the Scottish Institute of Enterprise, where we're looking at building so- social enterprise capstones into the curriculum. And um, I met a whole bunch of people who actually knew about my clan, Scott, who were laughing around about me and telling me to come over sometime and come down to the borders, which is where my clan hung from. So it's a little bit, it, it's just like all of us, you know, uh, uh, if we're Maori or Pacifica or Caucasian or whatever it is, 
you know, there's something about the history of your roots that actually is grounding for you. So, and I love the, I love both these. i 
Jeff, we've been talking about getting the sustainable development goals, or before that, the millennial development goals, into the into the curriculum, into teaching for the longest ever time. Are we actually making progress? Yeah. In fact, I think we're making significant progress. Um, I uh, Back before COVID, I, gave a, I was invited to give a keynote address for the International Entrepreneurship Educators Conference in Oxford. Um, and they wanted me to do it to talk about the work that we've been working on in about five countries so far on building social enterprise capstones focused on the SDGs into the curriculum. So what I've been working on with folks and what they're very interested in is not having to completely or A, just put in a unit on on sustainability, which is one option that doesn't work, or alternatively having to completely refigure the curriculum when you can't do it. So one of the compromises that everyone's come up with is you have a capstone at the end, which you introduce as a subject, but it's a transdisciplinary subject in which students actually go out and work uh, on a real-life sustainability issue in their surrounding community or in a chosen international community when you could travel um, with the idea of actually helping folks collectively solve it. So it's very much that listen, link and leverage and lead strategy. And it's very much tied into that thing you mentioned, the flip curriculum, developing graduates who are work ready plus for an unsettled future, which is not just having a lot of skill and knowledge, which is work ready for today, but the plus is actually how do you work around wicked problems? because they are inevitable. And so taking the moral purpose of the Sustainable Development Goals, having students work in real life projects with folks around social, cultural, economic or environmental sustainability and giving them credit for it and having transdisciplinary groups work on it with with assessment being actually how did they make an impact, then what you, what you get out of all of that, if you like, is a a feasible and relevant way to address the sustainable development goals and develop work ready plus capabilities in students at the same time, which is what I think we always have needed and which is one of the errors of what's happened with higher ed in many countries. It's become too modularised and too focused on skills and knowledge and too focused on individual little um, MOOCs and so on, whereas really, of course, in real life, it's a mess. So you might as well get practice in dealing with the mess and being comfortable with it um, before you graduate. Um, so there's been an enormous amount of interest in that. I've just been talking with the folks in Malaysia about that uh, at the same time. Uh, we just did, they're looking at building it in. And, and in Australia, and, and I would love to see New Zealand, if they're interested, to get involved with us. And what we're doing to try and foster good practice in building the Sustainable Development Goals into the curriculum I'm on a steering committee that's regenerating sustainability.edu.au, which I originally set up with a team in 2010 and which UTS took over, which is a searchable clearinghouse on cunning plans on how to address the sustainable development goals in your assessment and in your curriculum. And we were talking the other day and I was saying I was, I'd be sure that New Zealand would be kind of, would be A, a wonderful partner, but B, be interested in that. Um, and it ties very much into the capstones, just a finishing point. It, the capstones focus on social social enterprise for sustainable development link very much to the work of the regional centres of expertise in sustainable development, like RCE Otago. So you use the RCE to actually identify projects for students to go out and work on social enterprise capstones on. You're describing the wicked problems and the real life being a mess. In the last couple of years, that's gotten legs. 
it's got even messier. How do we prepare students? How do we prepare learners? How do we prepare ourselves for that kind of mess? Well, I think that the social enterprise capstones is one where you're getting out and actually facing it. The second thing is actually this, I think I've talked about this before when I was over with you guys, about actually doing studies with successful early career graduates in all the professions and getting them to identify wicked dilemmas that they've had to face and getting them to talk about how they handled them and then having a second capstone option, if we ever wanted to do it, which is based on dilemmas of professional practice. So you have two potential for two capstones, one focused on social enterprise for the SDGs, which helps people to work out multiple ways of seeing issues and working collaboratively. And the second one is dilemmas of professional practice identified in folks in their first three to five years out on the the key moment when when they were most challenged, when they got a surprise. And what was the surprise? How did it happen in the, in this profession? And what in what did I do to try and manage it? And in terms of my personal capabilities, in terms of who I worked with, uh, in terms of how I judged I was working with success. And then you take those in the actual capstone. You have a seminar each week with a new wicked problem identified by a successful graduate. You don't give anyone the answer. You say, here's the issue. What are you going to do? And then they get the answer after that. And so you get the four or five times and then for your your assessment, you can give them an unseen wicked problem and they have to actually say what they do and what capabilities they are implementing that we know are important capabilities for managing wicked problems from successful graduates um, to actually be able to self-analyse why they are doing things, which is something that's often been missing. You know, it's a sort of problem solving, but I don't know why. I wonder how many of those wicked dilemmas the new normal of we can just do stuff we don't have to be at work all those sort of old rules have gone can now be fixed because those constraints have been removed well it's going to be a it's 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 a bit like it's it is the age of uncertainty you know i mean in fact we've always had ages of uncertainty but i think um just in australia we've had floods we've had bushfires We've had COVID, you know, in three years. And so everyone's becoming quite comfortable with the fact that Mr. Cockup does visit um, and therefore, you know, are, are sort of interested in, well, how do we manage ourselves? So I think um, COVID is, is a fascinating example because to actually deal with COVID, you've had to deal with all 17 sustainable development goals in one way or another. You know, crowded housing, good health, education, water, clean water, infrastructure, fractious division, you know, people I don't want to wear a mask type people. So th- there's a lot of meat that we, we can reflect on our experience with COVID using the sustainable development goals to try and make sense of, A, what's been going on and, B, what others are doing or what we might do. So this, I think, th- the the idea of what's going to happen next, I think, is not really the focus. The I- idea is it's always things are going to run smoothly, then they're not. Then they are, then they're not. It's going to be like a sine curve of ups and downs of life. And the more I think folks get familiar with that and the more they get familiar, I've just written a chapter in a book about what I'm about to say, the more they get clear on what the, what their values are when they have to take hard decisions, the better. Um, and, you know, if you look at our, our capabilities for Work Ready Plus graduates from that Flip Correct project, 
you know, what the all of the folks around. We've now got 18,000 people using that site, by the way, around the world to reform their curriculum along the lines of what I'm talking about. And to develop Work Ready Plus graduates, they're, they're re reframing assessment in the curriculum around we want to make sure they're sustainability literate, 17 goals, change implementation savvy, they can manage mad people, inventive, socially, not just commercially, so socially is the social enterprise thing. And fourthly, and this is the point, clear on what the, where they stand on the tacit assumptions driving the 21st century agenda. Things like growth is good for everyone, consumption's happiness, information technology is always the answer, and globalisation and uh, just-in-time globalisation is fantastic. Right? And, of course, once you actually get them to reflect on the, 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 those taken for granted, COVID actually shows that maybe those taken for granted should not be taken for granted. Yes. Uh, and so that's a moral purpose. That's the new university and the new college. They should be developing graduates. Every graduate should have those capabilities. And you can see backward designing from what I've just said, why I've talked about those capstones. We hear a lot of people demanding certainty. And they want to know the date at which this is opening. And you can understand why that is from a a perspective of, you know, they've got the bank manager saying, when are you going to turn this business around? Or, or you, you actually need to make plans for, for, for things. But it's been a real eye-opener for me of that demand for certainty in a, in, a, in a global pandemic in which uncertainty is the norm. Yep, yep. And, and that's why education is the, is the key because change is learning and therefore education is key. Therefore, what we have to do, starting with kids in, in, at kindergarten and school, is to actually start to look at these tacit, a tacit assumption that certainty is inevitable. You know, it's another tacit assumption. And so rather than denying that or telling them they're stupid, people have to realise that there are some moments in life when things are certain, but it's never certain that it will remain certain. <laughs> And that that's that's life. And the more you can. And that, of course, is where, you know, the world's religions have always operated from. Anyway, if you look at Buddhism, you know, it's actually, you know, deal with the monkey mind. You know, when things are going wrong, how do you manage yourself then? Which is, you know, how you become a good human being and a good parent and a good father or mother. You know, it's managing the kids when, when they're not doing what you want them to do in the certain way you want them to do it. They're doing something else. And the more we practice that everywhere, the better we have morally robust, decent people who are able to manage people and situations when they don't go successfully. So, you know, it's, it is the age of uncertainty and COVID has just told us that. And therefore, people, I think, are, have a readiness now to actually look at those tacit assumptions that maybe three years ago they didn't. You know, like flying. Why am I flying all the time? You know? Well, you, because we're creatures of habit. You know, once you get into the habit of doing this and that and that, the other, and, you know, it, it's only never waste a crisis, I suppose, you know, that old <laughs> saying, you know, you know, never waste a crisis because it, it's, it's then that you, you can get a bit of a shattering of your tacit assumptions. So I'm very strong on that moral purpose of higher ed, and, and I think it's a missing element. 
Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, koutou I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope, wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are. A triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for all of us it has been a very difficult time and we're doing our best at this time to find ways to get through even if this is trying something completely different and I would always encourage this. As we know I have been enjoying some things completely different, paddle boarding and all kinds of outdoor activities that I've never tried before and this has been a wonderful thing for me to get out of my comfort zone to try something that I found frightening, to try something that is introducing me to new ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling and the people who are already enjoying this outdoor recreation as my dear friend would say. So I'm about to head out paddleboarding again today with my dear friend whose birthday it was on Monday and I'm just so looking forward to having that time in nature surrounded by the beauty of the living world because of course as we know when we have the opportunity to be immersed in the stillness and the peace and the beauty and the tranquility part of us is able to process what has been taking place over the last many years of our lives and indeed what is awaiting us in the future we can prepare for. It's a time for our mind and ourselves and all of those aspects that we present externally to rest and for us to reconnect with that stillness within. So I'm really looking forward to this paddleboarding expedition. This morning I've been judging the Otago Art Society's latest exhibition for the Fringe Festival, which is called Pink, and it's all about pink, and it's all for the Breast Cancer Foundation New Zealand. So it's a wonderful cause and a really, really beautiful exhibition. And there were more than 200 works that I had to choose from, so it was very hard, but it really uplifted me seeing all of the creativity seeing all of the love that has gone into every single one of those works and it really encouraged me to reconnect with my own creativity in whatever form that may eventuate and that may arise within so I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you these moments in time are helping you to reframe and reorient yourself towards a hopeful present and a hopeful future that we can continue to move forward with forward momentum. We can regain that sense of personal autonomy and control. We can understand that we choose how we feel and that when we are moving through times of frustration and despair, times of sadness, times of grief it's important to acknowledge all of those feelings and allow ourselves to feel all those feelings to really really do our best 
to give those feelings the time and the space and the love that they need to feel heard and seen and appreciated so that they can then be transmuted once again into feelings of happiness. And for me, being part of this show is a great comfort and a really great support for me, having these five minutes with you to share where I am at is so helpful so I want to say a big thank you to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team and all of you for being part of this show and I really hope that today you can see so many new opportunities awaiting you so many new doors and windows and vistas and pathways opening in front of you so many exciting and enriching and fulfilling new moments to enjoy are waiting for you and i'll look forward to talking to you again soon thanks so much Kakiti. you're listening to blowing bubbles we're talking with jeff scott jeff we're talking about the age of uncertainty and one of the things that we've been focusing on, because the theme of the show is positive but not deluded, is the role of hope and imagination. Do they fit in? Where do they fit into sort of capability models or, or, or into Work Ready Plus? I think hope is tied up very much into uh, into working on a why don't we philosophy of life, not a why don't you. Because if you look at learned helplessness, right, learned helplessness always has as part of its rhetoric, why don't you? So enabling people to get efficaciousness, and this is seen across many classes and cultures, you know, actually working intentionally through education on the fact that you can do things, but it's never going to work out perfectly. But doing it together is the way to do it. You know, why don't we uh, is actually an operational definition of hope. Uh, uh, an operational definition of depression is why don't you? And so the mess, and that's why you can, the social enterprise content, uh, capstones, the dilemmas and all of that stuff, you know what I mean? It's all us, why don't we? Let's, let's look at it, not deny it. Efficacy, a sense of self-efficacy is actually the underpinning um, engine, if you like, of hope. You talk about effective change leaders. One of the things that we've noticed is that Lots of the people who claim to be change leaders are really struggling. The project management, having that control, mm. they're, they're the ones that are particularly not coping with a sort of a non-linear environment. Yep. Can we do better? Well, we've just, it's interesting you mentioned this. Um, last year, we just replicated the turnaround leadership for sustainability in higher ed research that we did in 2012 in Japan and Malaysia. We were just interested in looking at intercultural di- um, similarities and differences and that research that the the idea of that research was um, what people will when people want to learn to do something including a local leader who by the way are the final arbiters of change in any of these areas if they don't engage they won't engage their staff so the students don't get anything it's all the same it's just window dressing what they love is a fellow traveler in their role further down the path who's been doing well in dealing with mad moments and so that whole turnaround leadership for sustainability in higher ed research has produced dozens upon dozens of case studies of, of effective local leaders as well as central leaders. We've done it at various levels. Uh, in ter- talking about the classic things you'll come up with when you're trying to build sustainability in the curriculum, 
And here's what I did. So it's very much tied back to what I was saying earlier about the dilemmas issue. And what people love more than anything else is a fellow traveller further down the path talking about the thing, the, the horrible moments they faced. A, they it becomes a why don't we? Because you then start to think, oh, look, I'm not the only one. And also you get a repertoire of solutions that you can't come up with just both through trial and error by yourself. And that's why one of the key elements of this rejuvenated sustainability.edu.au site is going to be not just what to do, but how to make it happen. We have seen lots of change in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Yeah, well, it's a, it, it's, it's a bit of a... a a bit of a Pandora's box in a way that we've opened up, I think. I mean, I I actually think that, like, I've got three kids and none of them actually go into work five days a week, right? They, they are sort of going back one or two. Um, and I think that's, as I said at the very outset of our chat, you know, I think we are three-dimensional relationship people. And I think you need to have three-dimensional relationships if you're going to then use Zoom, you know what I mean? You can't start to Zoom on a three-dimension. A three You've got to have a real one first. Um so I think it, work may change. I think patterns of work. And that's interesting because that's patterns of travel to work. You know, like the, the, the commuters in Sydney, you know, spending an hour and a half each day to go through five days a week into work. They're no longer doing it and they kind of like it. And productivity in the measures that the companies make is, hasn't, isn't too bad. I think fewer people will fly. I think that's just going to have unintended positive consequences uh, for the environment. I think the same thing with the commuting. Um, so, the, uh, and I think uh, the notion of actually social gatherings always inevitably being uh, open to everyone may come and go. Uh, and, and this is my final point. I think there's a whole issue of equity around what's happened with technology has enabled COVID to spread across the world, but it's also with equity, it's enabled certain countries to have vaccine nationalism and to have lots of vaccines and other countries to have none. And it's in those countries that mutations may occur. And if, if some travel continues, then we'll continue to reinfect. So I think there will be an uncertainty over the next five years or so, at least in terms of opening and closing. I don't think it's completely over yet, um, but I think there's cause for hope, particularly in our countries. You know, we're, we're, we are blessed, really, uh, and we should realise it. Not just by distance, but by, by our management. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the response to the pandemic for dealing with those bigger sorts of problems, the global ones, the climate change, the, the, the biodiversity collapse, the, the, the social injustice? Well, you know, I think it's it's an interaction of factors. You know, like in Australia, we've had the most monumental floods over here. You know, so it's sort of and and that has un, un, sort of revealed the challenges of our, our, our resilience systems, our health systems, which are already were weakened, if you like, or by COVID. If you know what I mean, like so, you get a series of various things coming down the track, which is why. Folks have to learn how to manage that uncertainty in a way that's why don't we and productive. Um, you know, I mean, I think the other thing, of course, is Ukraine at the moment is going to have some interesting interactions, um, I think, with the impact that COVID's had on us in terms of travel and health and all and the sustainable development goals themselves. You know, um, it's because what's happening in Ukraine is not just a an invasion. It actually has ramifications for those tacit assumptions I mentioned. Globalisation, global links, global trade, consu energy consumption, 
uh, fuel, you know, maybe less oil. You know, I mean, over here, like same with you, the petrol's going through the roof in terms of price now. There's suddenly a dramatic upswing in interest in um, in electric cars, electric vehicles, EVs. Um, but if we can solve the issue of, of sustainable electricity as opposed to uh, blue hydrogen, getting green hydrogen going and getting hot tidal power and stuff going and getting solar going, uh, you know, I think that's something that will happen is we'll, we'll have less travel, but if it is travel, it'll be more electric. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have a Dire Straits, Local Hero. Why this one? Well, I just love the naughtiness of Local Hero. The actual movie itself, I thought it was very naughty how this oil magnate came over to take over a, a place in Scotland and all of the local villagers did him like a dinner. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love the naughtiness of that. And then I love the setting of it too, um, the setting of, you know, and, I like, and the music. I, I think the music uh, is that wonderful way in which it builds, builds, from, builds up gently in wells, you know, it's very much, uh, very emotional.
Jeff, do you think that after the pandemic, if there is an after the pandemic, do you think it's a return to a business as usual, as a to an education as usual, or is it something else? Uh, I think, um, as I mentioned, you know, I'm a, a chair of that International College Academic Board, and I think, you know, what we've done there is what everyone's done, is they've had to move very rapidly to online. Um, and, you know, I mean, I started working, I was chair of the University of Technology, Sydney's Flexible Learning Task Force in 1997, where we started talking about blended learning. So what's that? That's um, getting up to 23, 25 years ago, 25 years ago, quarter of a century. Um, that's what I think will happen. I think uh, staff have had to come uh, to work out how to actually work productively with students online. I think there's a lot of work being done by the Australian Council of Open and Distance Education, which I'm involved with, on how to actually do interactive learning online. I think it will still then become part of a blended learning strategy. You know, as we were talking earlier, you know, you'll find universities, students still have to come along to do practicums. They still have to go out to be a nurse or a doctor into a hospital, etc. But there will be components of learning that will be the efficacious use of online. Um, but it must always be interactive and not um, simply a lecture put up online. It's got to be using the power of interactivity that we've now got with those tools, I think, um, will be very much. So it'll be blended learning and they talk at, you know, hybrid learning, I think, is the latest. You know, they just change the terms, but it's all the same thing as, as it's been since the 1990s. Um, and I think that will that will be more embedded in in, in systems. For the students who are currently you know, halfway through, nearly finished their degrees, and they're likely to have their entire um, tertiary experience in a pandemic environment, do you think they're going to be okay in terms of their professional practice? Well, I think they've certainly had to learn how to look after themselves. Um, you know, I, I, in a way, you know, we are at our best when we're challenged. And, you know, I think this has been incredibly challenging. You know, and there's been enormous numbers of mental health challenges that students, I think, have had to face, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and, you know, I think the higher ed systems that I've worked in around the world have tried really very much to be aware of that and to help students. Um, and I, I think I think from that, hopefully, I think the large majority of students will actually have a sense of efficacy um, that uh, has come out of that adversity. But I have no way of judging that now. We have to wait and see. Do you think it's going to change their perceptions of, of careers? I mean, some of them, like at least one of my kids, would have been kayak guiding in Norway by now. Mm. And his essentially his career is on hold. Yeah. Do you think it's going to change how they perceive the career, their career and, and their professional practice? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I've got a daughter who's in Hollywood who was an actress who's now actually an online influencer with online an online food channel. Um, so th there's, a, there's a, I think there's a lot of adaptability um, because that generation, um, for the challenges they've had to face, they've also got this uh, sort of ICT savviness that I certainly completely and utterly lack. Um, you know, I sort of say things like, you know, stand on Netflix, you know, to my kids. Um yeah, and I think uh, in terms of career, that is why I think um, actually focusing on skills and knowledge alone uh, is not going to be the way to help folks adapt. And I mean, I think I remember giving a talk for you guys over at Otago Poly um, at a conference about the future of work. And, you know, this is well before the pandemic. But even then, we were talking about the fact that people don't have one or two careers. 
they can have multiple careers and therefore they need that adaptability and resilience and that moral uh, moral clarity and the personal and interpersonal capabilities that enable you to actually work your way through uncertain moments, including taking decisions about career change, you know, like my daughter Claire in LA. Um, you know, um, the alternative is to say, oh, no, I'll just give up or I'll just, but, you know, they seem to plug on and I think um, that's to their credit. But I do worry about um, international policies and climate change and, uh, you know, I think there is an, an, an un, still that's going to come back, you know what I mean? Like COVID has sort of covered over that a little bit, um, but it's actually not unrelated to it. Um, you know, if you look at zoonotic transfer, you know, it, it was a bat pissing on a pangolin in areas where that have been deforested and they just get closer and closer to people. So, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, I think I, I do empathise with their concerns about that, but I think hopefully if we can get our higher ed to actually help them look at the nature of change and resilience, you know, and more focus on, on how you manage change for yourself and others and less just on content of skills and knowledge, the better. I have some questions to end the show and not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, well, I think basically carrying on um, relationships with my family um, and with my friends and colleagues around the world, uh, particularly when we're in full lockdown, um, and actually still maintaining a little bit of a sense of hope. Um, so it's not a big deal thing in a way, um, you know, um, and I think, you know, in terms of professionally, I think uh, working with folks around the world on that moral purpose for built, using the Sustainable Development Goals as the new key moral purpose of every university and seeing a bit of a positive response in that, not unrelated to what we're saying about what COVID's done to the mindset of people. I think that has made them a bit more receptive. Because we can do things. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it, it, they've discovered again, uh, why don't we? actually is kind of a nice way to be. We are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? <laughs> so, listening. <laughs> listening. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Nah, not really. Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've been on demos on occasions and so on, but... Um, I, th I think activism, there's a nuanced way to, to do activism and the best activism comes from the listening, linking, leverage and le leading in that order. In other words, act act activists don't get out and shake their fists and fingers at people. Activists actually listen to people and enable them to develop up their own capacity to actually deal with some of the agendas. And that's one of the big challenges we face really at the world at the moment in, in terms of sustainability is that the con the converted only talk to the converted and the converted have a great difficulty engaging the disengaged. And this is exacerbated by the international, the, the, the bubbles, the, the bubbles that are encouraged by social media. So it's another form of bubble uh, where, where only the converted, people only talk to the ones they want to hear from. And, and, of course, Facebook and all of these algorithms actually only give you back that which is your bias. So that's the real, the that listen, link, leverage and lead thing is actually tied into that notion of dealing with that challenge of engaging the disengaged. We've got to be much better at working with the people that we think are bloody not on the money. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think uh, the, 
Well, uh, I've always, I'm first in, fa- I mean, it's not, a bit of a cliche now. I was first in my family to go to university and I've had a blessed life. It's been a serendipitous life. I've had the most wonderful life. And although I've had lots of ups and downs, you know, plenty of downs, you know, uh, what gets me out of bed in the morning is I know that after the downs, there are always ups. And the beauty of life is you never know what the up's going to be. Like my entire career has been a series of unexpected ups, <laughs> followed by, you know, miserable downs where I've woken up at four o'clock in the morning and said, I think I should be a truck driver or something. You know, um, that, yeah, I really do can, have, I have optimism. And you can always go surfing. And I love surfing. And there's something absolutely stunning about the what water does, what water is, and what it is to be in water, and how remarkable it is that that substance exists. And you know, and to be able to go and buddy get into it and to ride those things called waves, you know, it's a bit of a metaphor for life, really. Which wave do you pick? <laughs> so, what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Oh, just staying alive, basically, mate. I think it's, that'll that'll do me. Um, yeah, I'm. Yeah, just basically, essentially just carrying on essentially with the mates I've got around the world professionally and with my family, you know. Um, you know, my, my second daughter got married this January, you know, and so there's all of that lovely thing that we've all discovered, rediscovered in a new way, I think, through COVID, you know, which is the importance of actually the, the we of family. Sounding a little bit sort of corny there. I think I better start writing <laughs> <crying> soon. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Well, this the lessons I've learned about life is, is a couple of them. The first is the listen, link, leverage, and lead whenever you can. Always listen first if you can, and listen to resistors. Don't just listen to your mates. That's the first one. The second one is just to realize is good ideas with no ideas on how to implement them are wasted ideas. So. You know, the the more we all try to get better at actually what do we do on Monday to make this fantastic idea on that we've just launched in a policy actually happen for in a way that benefit, benefits um, human being, our fellow human beings the better. And the third one uh, and the final one is change doesn't just happen. It has to be led, but very deftly. And tied to that is the local leaders of change are the key arbiters. It's not just the very senior people. It's the local folk, and that's why we've really got to start, as I said, to actually get those fellow traveller tips going through clearinghouses like sustainability.edu.au. And I would love it if New Zealand was willing to get involved with us in that project, actually. Um, so spread the word around there, and just all I need, just give me a bell, serendipitous out of the blue, uh, and we'd love to, because you're doing great work there, actually. You know, I think New Zealand's on the money, not off it. Thank you very much for that. What the plan is for Monday is one of the things that I use from you all the time. <laughs> good on you, mate. Yeah, that's, that sounds good. What do we do on Monday? Yeah, that's right. Lovely. Oh, ooh, what? Oh, <laughs> sorry, I'm busy now. I've got to go. <laughs> right. you know, or the other one to watch out was when in doubt, have a meeting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when it blows over the sea
with people in neighbourhoods, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. This is Midnight Oils. Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Sam Mansour's Beijing and I've been joined today from Sydney by Jeff Scott. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.